What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. On today's show, the month of August for many is about Black August and a time to remember and commemorate freedom fighters, especially those who struggled for liberation inside of jails and prisons and paid the ultimate price via assassination by the state. We are joined this morning by Terha Ak. And when we put prison in the context of white supremacy and the role that it serves, it is meant to be the apparatus that prevents our genius, that prevents our power from being developed. Because as I said earlier, the greatest fear of white supremacy is retribution and the taking of power from those that the power was built on their back or it was taken from. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. For many of us, the month of August is about Black August, a time to remember and commemorate freedom fighters, especially those who struggled for liberation inside of jails and prisons, or as some call them, including myself, American concentration camps. Many of those uh, comrades paid the ultimate price via assassination by the state, and many continue to languish in prisons today. One of the freedom fighters that we're going to talk about this morning is George Jackson, who was assassinated by the state at San Quentin Prison on August 21st, 1971. We're going to start by listening to a portion of The Struggle Inside, an audio documentary about the origins of the modern anti-prison movement. It was made by the Freedom Archives on the 30th anniversary of the murder of freedom fighter George Jackson. It is narrated by Jonathan Jackson Jr., his nephew. Saturday, August 21st, 1971. Today at about 3 p.m. there was an attempted break from our adjustment center, which is our maximum security facility. George Jackson was killed as he broke and ran outside the adjustment center. Well, I could die tomorrow, but uh, there'll be two or three hundred people to take my place. This is one black man they're not gonna murder and sweep under the rug, unless they murder me too. Today we present The Struggle Inside, the 30-year anniversary of the murder of George Jackson, a program about the origins of the modern anti-prison movement. My name is Jonathan Jackson, Jr. In 1960, at the age of 18, George Jackson was accused of stealing $70 from a gas station near Los Angeles. Though there was evidence of his innocence, his court-appointed lawyer maintained that because Jackson had a record, two instances of petty crime, he should plead guilty in exchange for a light sentence in the county jail. He did, and instead received an indeterminate sentence of one year to life. Jackson spent the next ten years in prison, seven and a half of them in solitary confinement. Instead of succumbing to the dehumanization of prison existence, he transformed himself into the leading theoretician of the prison movement and a brilliant writer. On January 16, 1969, a few days after a prison guard shot and killed three black Soledad inmates, another guard was found beaten to death. Soledad was a real intense place. David Johnson, prison activist and former prisoner. There had been a lot of killings in the hole. Most of the killings had taken place. They were either racial killings, 
and then there was a couple of instances where guards had doing a, a, a cell extractions had tear gas and killed inmates the tension there was real high the assassinations on the yards of W.L. Nolan Alvin Miller and Cleveland Edwards triggered this whole upheaval in, in the California penal system the three who became known as the Soledad brothers were brought in chains and shackles to two secret hearings in Salinas County and so commenced one of the most extensive legal defenses in U.S. history. The Soledad brothers were charged with murder, not because there was any substantial evidence of their guilt, but because they had been identified as black militants by the prison authorities. If convicted, they would face a mandatory death sentence. The Soledad brothers all have his basis and his connection with the Black Panther Party. David Hilliard, Black Panther Party leader. George, who says himself that it was the Black Panther Party more than anything that gave expression to uh, political prisoners as a voice. Notice had to be served on the Department of Corrections that you just cannot wantonly kill black people without some type of response. Here to Malcolm X's philosophy, there's nothing wrong with self-defense. When those brothers got killed on the yard, the courts ruled that it was justifiable homicide. What alternative do you have as a group? The Soledad Brothers case emerged as a focal point for a growing movement demanding changes within California prisons. It was a time when the American status quo was shaken by black rebellion in more than 100 cities, as well as the mass movement against the Vietnam War. These ideas were developed against the backdrop of progressive revolutions uh, transforming the globe. Angela Davis, prison abolitionist and University of California professor. The struggles of the Vietnamese people, for example. The fact that increasing numbers of countries in Africa were achieving their independence. And today people tend to think about the movements of the 60s as movements that were very separate, nationalists, uh, racially defined, because they're looking at them through the lens of what is generally considered to be identity politics today. But as a matter of fact, the, the black power movement per se was not an exclusive movement. There were people of all racial, ethnic backgrounds involved in that movement. There was a connection with global movements, uh, and there was a connection with uh, the Young Lords, uh, the Brown Berets, uh, the American Indian Movement. Uh, we were part of a global revolution. There was no question about uh, the importance of making those connections and building those bridges. The prison was our battleground, our battlefield. David Johnson. It wasn't in isolation with what was taking place outside because as people start to raise their voices about civil rights violations and human rights violations, then brothers inside, through civil litigation, through protests, strikes, and stuff like that, fought to gain their civil rights and human rights. On August 7, 1970, just a short time after George Jackson was transferred to San Quentin Prison, the Soledad brothers case was catapulted to the forefront of national news when George's brother, Jonathan, a 17-year-old high school student in Pasadena, 
led a raid on the Marin County Courthouse with a satchel full of handguns, an assault rifle, and a shotgun hidden under his coat. Educated as a political revolutionary by his brother, Jonathan invaded the court during a hearing for three San Quentin inmates, not including his brother, and handed them weapons. As Jonathan left the courthouse, leading the three prisoners and five hostages, including the judge, he demanded that the Soledad brothers be released. Prison guards and other authorities opened fire on the escape van, killing Jonathan Jackson, William Christmas, James McLean, and the judge. Only one black prisoner, Rochelle McGee, survived what has become known as the Marin County Rebellion. Rochelle McGee. This is one of the reasons I fight so hard and fight back and will continue to do so with the belief that I've always had. As long as you fight, nobody know how the fight going to come out. It's a possibility I might win, but I know if I stop, I cannot win. I also believe that one man, one man can make a difference if he's sincere. Jonathan, George wrote, he was free for a while. I guess that's more than most of us can expect. George Jackson, recorded in San Quentin before his murder. I don't think that uh, it's fair to Jonathan Jackson. I don't think it's fair to William Christmas or to uh, James McLean or Brother McGee. I don't think it's fair at all to uh, try to bury those brothers' examples. And, you know, Jonathan sacrificed his his life for the cause of freeing his brother and, and all of those who were unjustly imprisoned. There wasn't one thing that could stop those brothers from uh, attaining what uh, they started out to do. I think it was well thought out. The mistake was in uh, underestimating the viciousness of uh, the prison guards. David Hilliard. Jonathan Jackson uh, made an attempt to free George and, uh, and other political prisoners. Certainly a, a revolutionary action, Jonathan and uh, the judge and William Christmas and James McLean were all killed in that event. And Rochelle McGee, who still lingers in prison, was also um, a part of that attempt to, uh, to free those brothers from prison. Rochelle McGee, prison activist and jailhouse lawyer, still in prison for his political resistance. Slavery is something that is being practiced by the system under the color of law. Slavery 400 years ago, slavery today. It's the same, but with a new name. They're making millions and millions of dollars off of enslaving blacks, poor whites, and others daily. People who don't even know that they're being railroaded. George Jackson. The only way the oppressor can maintain his position is by fostering, nurturing, building contempt for the oppressed. The brutality really leads to more resistance, and that's what we're working for, revolution. The institutions uh, that buttress the, the establishment uh, yeah, have to be assaulted. Political incarceration removes threats to the political and economic hegemony of the United States. Even though in 1959, 
George Jackson initially went to prison as an everyday lawbreaker with a one-year-to-life sentence. It was his political consciousness that kept him incarcerated for 11 years. One of the important achievements of the movement during that period was to do what George Jackson called the transformation of a criminal consciousness into a political consciousness. Angela Davis. I mean, this was precisely what he took on. And no one can deny that um, there were many people then, as now, committing antisocial acts against uh, members of their communities, members of other communities. So that when you leave these institutions and go back to your communities, you can be an asset to your community and not a predator. David Johnson. And a lot of brothers embrace that concept. That was a selection from The Struggle Within, an audio documentary produced for the 30th anniversary of the murder of George Jackson at San Quentin on August 21st, 1971. Uh, It's narrated by Jonathan Jackson Jr. and made by the Freedom Archives. You can listen to the entire documentary and find out more about uh, Freedom Archives and the work that they do at freedomarchives.org. And we'll have the links uh, to this audio doc available on our website today. So we're going to spend the rest of the time uh, doing a little bit more history and, and, and localizing uh, to Oakland um, the, the legacy of freedom fighters and George Jackson. We are joined this morning by Terha Ak, longtime organizer, movement strategist, security expert, co-founder of the Anti-Police Terror Project, founder of Community Ready Corps, the field marshal for the Black Panther Party Cubs, and who served as vice chair of the Black August Organizing Committee uh, from 2003 to 2008. Good morning, Terha. Good morning. Good morning. There you are. Good morning. Good morning. So thank you so much for joining us today. I'm just wondering your reactions. Like, it doesn't matter how many times I hear the history, read the history, the emotions that it brings up. When I think about those times and and both the war that was being waged on our folks, but also the way our folks were fighting back and and the price that they paid for simply defending our humanity as people on this planet. It, listen, I, 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 so much was was hitting me while you were while that interview uh, while that documentary was playing. I, I think that it's often underrepresented and untold how the work that that generation did is impacting us now, and it often manifests in ways that aren't readily apparent. Right? It was brothers. First of all, Phil Marshall George had was the significant political motivator for me to get involved in the movement, right? It was Soledad brother that really sat with me. And it was one part in particular because I was in the martial arts since I was nine years old when he talked about doing thousands of bastardized katas. And that may have been in blood in my eye, but that sat with me because I was always creative and I was always looking for ways to shape what I was learning into something. And so to see these black men even take political philosophies like socialism, dialectical materialism, and turn it into something that was useful for us without college degrees, without even the support of the white socialist community. To do it on our terms and be unapologetic about it, but not only unapologetic, effective, effective to actually organize communities 
that were seen as discardable or irrelevant or unorganizable. Because you have to remember that Minister Huey P. Newton and Field Marshal George organized what they called the lumping. And the lumping, according to Marx, was unorganizable and almost useless, pretty much useless. And so for for them to organize and do what they did, it had a significant impact on people like me because it was because of all of the people in my life who had been locked up or were in the streets like my father, Phil Marshall George, Baba Shaka, those types of brothers, I did not go to prison. Not because I wasn't built to stand my ground, not because I ran from anybody, not because I hid, because they gave me a politic that said, use your skills for the people. So I've spent my whole life doing that because of brothers like Phil Marshall George, because of brothers like Baba Shaka, Minister Huey, Chairman Fred Sr., we're going to talk more about Baba Shaka at Thin End uh, a little bit later in the program. Yeah, f- folks, y- y'all see uh, Oakland Bay Area folks, they-, they see Brother Terha on the streets, you know, protecting us. Folks um, don't know that, that he is one of the-, the dopest historians of our struggle uh, that I know. And so we're going-, we're going to stay here for just a moment. Terha, I want you to, you-, you, s- you said that they were effective right, in organizing our communities. And of course we saw that, right, with the explosion of the Panther Party and, and um, the, the programs that were all over this country. We also know that they were effective because the way that the United States government responded, right, with, with almost unprecedented violence. I mean, I, I, the only way that I can describe or think about it really um, is, is the, the, the level of violence that was um, that was ignited uh, level, d- during Jim Crow era, right? When they were bombing uh, uh, us and lynching us, like that level of violence. But this time, instead of white supremacist Ku Klux Klan folks, this, the violence was coming directly at us from the government. I, w- I w- yeah. want you to, 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 talk, to talk about that, right? Like, like out in the open, gu- gun shootouts at, at party officers. Um, executions, assassinations. That was what COINTELPRO was. It wasn't simply just collecting of documents and, and, and spying on people, right? It was, that their goal was to destroy our, uh, any movement for black liberation and, and the black community um, in the process. Yes. And, and one of the things about COINTELPRO that we have to be clear on is that COINTELPRO was just the code name for A, operation. And that's important. That's vital. That it was a code name for a operation. There were hundreds of operations that preceded COINTELPRO that were the predecessor for COINTELPRO. And 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 we have to we would be we would be remiss if we didn't acknowledge that today is the birthday of the honorable Marcus Mosiah Garvey. Because mm-hmm. J. Edgar Hoover cut his teeth on Baba Garvey. And so that's important to say because it wasn't the it wasn't the first and it certainly wasn't the last. Often we use this general term called now Intel Pro. And we as a people, we as a people are very, very immature of our understanding and our navigation 
of their intelligence operations against us as a community. They know and understand who we are as a people. They understand what they've done to us as a people, and they understand that it is in our genetic memory that if we ever get an opportunity, retribution might be at hand. And so because of that, they're always, because we're so close to the gears and the mechanisms, because we're inside of everything that they do, they have to monitor us as a people. And they have to, as Minister Huey said, Minister Huey said he made a distinction between the implacables and the endorsed spokespeople. The implacables was George Jackson. The implacables were Baba Shaka. The implacables were Chairman Fred Sr. The implacables were, 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 were was Bunchy Carter. Those were the implacables. Those were the folks who stood up against and were willing to put themselves on the gears and did and suffered because of it. And then there's the endorsed spokespeople. And the endorsed spokespeople are the ones that they sanction. And you can always tell who they sanction by how they fight them. Not fake fights, actual fights. And, 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 Kat, this is something you know a lot about, right? It's something we as a collective know a lot about. That, that, that the attacks happen consistently. And any progress that you make, you have to fight for it. So, COINTELPRO was just one of the operations. There were many before, and there have been many after. But we, we, it's, a, it's a constant because they have to monitor and contain and control a population that the greatest sin, one of the greatest sins on the planet has ever been perpetuated against. And they always are afraid of the anger and the righteous retribution that might come about if the people get politically awakened. Oh, you said a word there. We are going to um, give Terha a breathing moment and we're going to listen to a little bit more of um, the audio documentary, the Freedom Archives audio documentary about George Jackson, narrated by uh, Jonathan Jackson, Jr. I had met George when I was like 17 in the segregation unit at Tracy. Sundiata Tate. And he always struck me as this incredible, beautiful person, uh, intellectual giant. But he didn't speak with intellectual words. He spoke in a way that the average person had no problems understanding him. I can even recall when he organized a strike and he got everyone to refuse to eat and throw their trays out on the tier. And he got black brothers to do that, Hispanic brothers to do that, and a few white brothers that was there. He got all of them to participate in this. One of the warrens, uh, system warrens or something, was supposed to be making an appearance and to show out this pleasure. All of us collectively, when they brought our food, threw it out on the tier. What was going on, we was down with it, and we protested against those conditions, the food that we was given, the lack of sunshine. I just remember him organizing it. People who had the opportunity to meet him in, in prison were really drawn to him because of his passion, because of his uh, dedication, and his determination to work through these 
questions of revolution. The prison had failed to contain uh, George's enthusiasm and his dedication and his, um, his joy, his happiness. Not very many people had the opportunity to know him as a human being. A young man by the name of George Jackson in San Quentin wrote this letter to his mother three days before he was murdered. Harry Belafonte, performer and human rights activist. It was on the occasion of her birthday. Dear Mama, I hope this year's birthday finds you well. I would like to be able to give you things and take you places, but I've been unfortunate and slow learning. But I've learned well. Perhaps next year, I'll be able to give you a villa in Tanzania. On Saturday, August 21st, 1971, Soledad brother George Lester Jackson was shot to death by guards in the prison yard at San Quentin. If they kill me, Mama, he had written home in a letter, I'll just be dead, but I'll never kiss their feet. That Saturday afternoon, Georgia Jackson had rushed to San Quentin to learn of her son's fate. A guard at the gate said, last year we killed one of your sons and, and today we killed another. If you aren't careful, you'll have no sons left. Georgia Jackson said to the guard, I have sons throughout the world wherever people are fighting for freedom. That was a clip from the Freedom Archives audio documentary uh, about the life and legacy of George Jackson, narrated by Jonathan Jackson, Jr. We are in conversation with Terha Ak, founder of Community Ready Corps, co-founder of the Anti-Police Terror Project and vice chair of the Black August Organizing Committee from 2003 to 2008. Fifteen years ago, I moved to Oakland. And I have been connected to uh, a man named Baba Shaka at Thinan as a place that I should go to organize. And I remember sitting in at his table in, uh, in his home in, in North Oakland and in you and Sister Carol walked. And um, boy, did that set off <laughs> a path I had no idea I was going to walk down. Can you talk about the creation of the Black August Organizing Committee, uh, Baba Shaka's legacy, your work. I know it's a big question, but um, connect those dots. I mean, he was he was one of our freedom fighters, and, and, and he transitioned in April of this year. The Black August Organizing Committee was something that was happening way before I came to the table. And what was critical, though, is that at that point, I had was transitioning for me. I was transitioning away from another organizing space that had dispersed and we were, we were going in different directions. So, um, you know, at, at that point I was attempting to find my footing, my political footing. And so sometimes when you go through these personal political upheavals, sometimes you can, some people quit the movement. Because sometimes they're so heavy and so painful and traumatic that, you know, you say, hey, I'm going to do something else. 
So for me, there were a few folks who caught me at that time. And there were a few conversations that I had at that time that were critical to me keeping my feet on the path. One was Baba Shaka Adbenin. And it was critical for me at that time because you know, I had a young family. Uh, me and Carol were just beginning to move together, and we were in the process of building a family. And so there was a lot of decisions to be made. And meeting and sitting with Baba Shaka really helped to keep my foot and my feet on the path that we're on right now. And so, first of all, I want to I wanna acknowledge that. Once we started moving, you know, Baba Shaka was the one who, who appointed me as the, as the vice chair of the Black August Organizing Committee. And the impact, I can speak on the impact personally, and I can speak on the impact in the, on the movement, that it was always about principle. It was always about doing the work. It was always about doing the work, and that was the critical thing. And Baba Shaka, just like multiple other elders that I, I was fortunate to encounter, were always clear to impress that it wasn't about the title. It wasn't even about the organization, although that those things were important, that it was about the work, continue to do the work. And so that pattern has been the thing that sat with me is to continue to do the work and that is the thing that that drives where I am to this day and the work that we do and 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 so that's that's the thing I want to sit with first because that's the lasting legacy for me was to do the work and do the work that everybody doesn't is is always not willing to do and take the hits that everybody's not willing to take because that's what Baba Shaka was about. There were times he would let me read his paperwork, his write-ups, his prison papers, that, 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 that the files that were written about him from the guards. <laughs> and, and it was certainly an example of doing what nobody else was willing to do for the folks. I just want to take a minute and read a, a brief bio of Baba Shaka uh, that is on the GoFundMe page for his memorial. Uh, that he was a movement elder, former political prisoner, co-founder of the Black August Organizing Committee and the Black August Movement, who came up in the ranks under prison movement leader, activist, writer, and Black Panther Field Marshal George Jackson. After being released from prison, Baba Shaka dedicated his life to community through his work as an educator, organizer, mentor, and activist for the freedom for those unjustly imprisoned and those held in solitary confinement for long periods and for liberation of all. Terhal, what is Black August? Ultimately, it's a movement that was started by the brothers inside, right? Ultimately. And so philosophically, once again, it is a, a really practice because there's practices that should be performed in relationship to Black August. It's a discipline. It's a discipline. It's a way of life. And that is what I like to stress about Black August, because what is being emphasized is to do a thing. Because if we understand Field Marshal George, Baba Shaka, it was about doing a thing. It was it wasn't necessarily about empty rhetoric or philosophies. It was about getting on the ground and actually impacting conditions. 
And so Black August is a practice that is meant to be and engaged in in a way that keeps you rooted in the work and practice, the fasting, the study, but it is ultimately to hone and sharpen your disciplines to do work. And just for folks that, that don't know, Black August did start in 1979, a year after the murder of Katari Golden. And the brothers, the brothers inside, there was backlash and still is backlash, retribution for engaging in, in, in Black August, correct? Absolutely. There's a, a line in the documentary, um, it talks about incarceration uh, being an intentional interruption, right, of the struggle for liberation. Can you talk about uh, the, the other line in there that says prison is political? <laughs> My brother, Chairman Fred Hampton Jr. has a, 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 a consistent saying that everything is political. And when we put prison in the context of white supremacy, and the role that it serves. It is meant to be the apparatus that prevents our genes, that prevents our power from being developed. Because as I said earlier, the greatest fear of white supremacy is retribution and the taking of power from those that the power was built on their back or it was taken from. And so when you put prison in that context, because prison is an aspect of a process, a process that begins for before, beyond prison before prison. It's a process that begins in elementary schools. It's a process that begins with the media that we consume. It's an aspect of a process of disinvestment in our communities. It's a part of a process, and that's important to remember. So we keep it in context for what it is in, to in, in, in the total process. And so politically, politically, what it boils down to is that the prison industrial complex is meant to interrupt the process of healthy communities that would ultimately, as I said earlier, that could always potentially identify and see its power and want to do what's necessary to take that power, to cultivate that power. And so prison is that aspect, once again, a part of a process of disinvestment, of, of intentionally dysfunctionalized systems, and prison is the end result. We have just a, a few minutes left. I just want to um, take a minute and read some names because we forget far too often that there are folks that are still paying the price for uh, fighting for our liberation. Uh, Joseph Brown, Black Liberation Army in prison for 50 years. Veronza Bowers in prison for 46 years. Uh, Rochelle McGee in prison for 51 years. Uh, Remain Chip Fitzgerald in prison for 50 years. Mumia Abu-Jamal in prison for 40 years. Pete O'Neill in prison for 51 years. Matula Shakur in, in prison for 40 years. Uh, Russell Maroon Schultz, uh, in prison for 49 years. I mean, th the list goes on and on and on. Um, Tara, what, what is our obligation to those that are languishing inside because they fought for our freedom? First of all, to support, make sure that their cases are being supported, observed, keeping the administration honest, 
but it's a hard, they, they, that's our first obligation. And there are folks out there who are well, far more versed than me in that because they're doing that particular work. Right. And so definitely I want to begin there by making sure that the community knows that there are organizations who that's their primary focus. But for folks like us, for folks like me, the obligation is to do the work that they fought for, to keep the movement moving, to do the work that they fought for, that they worked for, that they sacrificed for. Because the folks who are locked up as political prisoners, they were sacrificing themselves for the betterment of the community. They wanted to see us advance. They wanted to see us have um, power, freedom, and justice. And so we should be engaged in the fight, the work, the, the, the creation of uplifting our communities. That's critical. That's what it was about. So in addition to supporting them specifically, and there are wonderful organizations out here doing that work all day, every day, we should be continuing to do the work because it is about ultimately at the end of the day, advancing our conditions. And I think we need to continuously say their names, right? We don't, we don't just say the names of those that have been killed and murdered. We need to say the names of those that are languishing in, in these prisons and remember what they did. Terhaak, we've got to leave it there. Unfortunately, you know, I could talk to you forever. I've, I got like 15 more questions here, but we will have you back. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. And um, Thank you for having We say, free them all. Free them all. Terha Ak is co-founder of the Anti-Police Terror Project, founder of Community Ready Corps, and he was vice chair of the Black August Organizing Committee from 2003 to 2008. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. Bye.